This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yidikar, where we are dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's sermons and talks, just the good stuff. We hope you'll enjoy. Thank you for your support. Shabbat Shalom. In December 1861, eight months into the Civil War, a new form of resistance took shape in parts of the South. Residents of North Carolina, southwestern Virginia, and eastern Tennessee opposed to slavery formed a group known as the Order of the Heroes of America. The heroes protected Confederate deserters and spies, aided runaway slaves reached the North, and supplied federal authorities with information about Confederate troop movements. The risks of this resistance were abundant, requiring a system of signs and passwords that were discreetly communicated their identity to each other, to Union troops, and to runaway slaves. So the heroes identified themselves by wearing a red string on their lapels and hanging one from their windows, thus earning this courageous group the nickname the Red Strings. This was not a random symbol. It was an intentional choice meant to connect the work of these abolitionists with the biblical story of Rahav, a story whose significance in 1861 moved people to activism as I hope it will today, 160 years later. The story of Rahav, our Haftarah today, appears in the second chapter of Joshua, the book that picks up the narrative where it leaves off at the end of Deuteronomy. The Israelites are preparing to cross the Jordan where a war for the land of Israel awaits them. Despite the catastrophic results from the first spy mission into Israel, the negative reports, the people's despair, and ultimately the punishment that the generation that lost faith will not merit to enter the land, Joshua nonetheless decides to once again send spies into the land of Israel. One last intelligence report before the conquest. But this time, the results are drastically different in large part due to the heroism and convictions of Rahav. At every turn, Rahav is a marginalized biblical character. She is a woman in a man's world, a Canaanite in a narrative that demands their complete annihilation, and a prostitute in a society that abhors her work. She exists at the periphery of her society, both figuratively and literally, as the text says, her dwelling was in the outer wall of the city, Beta Bekir HaChoma. She lives in the in-between space, familiar with what happens on the inside, but estranged and excluded from its protections. It's perhaps this marginal and liminal status that helps her see the corruption 
of her society and the necessity for change. Perhaps it's always the people excluded from power whose potential for power is most revolutionary. Given the proximity to the city limits and her profession, it's little surprise that the two Israelite spies arrive at her dwelling. But their safety there is quickly jeopardized by a report to the king of Jericho that Israelite spies have infiltrated the land. He suspects that Rachav is harboring these spies and demands their release. But she responds with a series of deceptions, diverting the king's troops and hiding the spies. Rachav understands that the tides of history are changing, that the Israelites will conquer the land and the God who freed the Israelites from slavery is the ultimate reality. She wants to be on the right side of history. So she pleads with the spies to spare her and her family from the ensuing violence in exchange for the chesed, the kindness she showed them. And their pact is sealed with a sign, a red string that will hang from her window, identifying her as the ally who stood up to the king and protected the Israelites. The spies lower themselves down by the string and return to Joshua and the Israelites with confidence that God's promise of a land of milk and honey would soon be delivered. I want to explore two dimensions of Rachav's courage and what they mean for us today. Why did she do what she did and how she translated her convictions into action? Why did Rachav choose to protect the Israelite spies? And more broadly, why did she align herself with the Israelite cause? So to answer this question, we have to take a deeper look at the society she lived in, which is alluded to in our Haftarah. The Bible is filled with stories that conjure previous narratives, linguistic and thematic clues that are meant to take the reader somewhere beyond the plain meaning of the text. So consider the arc of our text with an eye towards an earlier biblical story. Two strangers lodge in a city. The host defies a demand to expose the visitors. The city is ultimately destroyed and the host is saved. This is the plot sequence of both Rachav's story and the story of Lot and the destruction of Sodom. According to the incredible scholar Tikva Framerkensky, the biblical echo of Sodom in Rachav's story, quote, underscores the evilness of Canaanite society and the fact that it, like Sodom, deserved to be destroyed. Which then begs the question, what was the wickedness of Sodom that Rachav might have seen in Canaanite society. So in many ways, Sidom becomes the archetypal corrupt society in rabbinic literature. So there are many explanations for what made it evil and worthy of destruction. None of which, it needs to be said, 
are about men sleeping with other men. But today, there's one explanation that is particularly painful and relevant as an indicator of the corruptness of a society. The rabbis teach in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin 109. There were four judges in Sodom, and they were named for their actions. Shakrai, meaning liar. Shakrurai, habitual liar. Zephai, forger. And Matsledina, perverter of justice. In other words, the corruption of Sodom and any subsequent society that models itself after Sodom stems from the malicious actions of its judges. Judges who lie and lie under oath. Judges who defraud the public through misrepresentation. Judges who pervert justice. The first example that the rabbis cite of the rulings that these judges rendered, honestly, it's hard to even say it out loud. In the case of one who strikes the wife of another and causes her to miscarry, these wicked judges would say to the woman's husband, give the woman to the one who struck her so that she will be impregnated for you again. This ruling the rabbis are teaching is the ultimate perversion of justice. A woman who miscarried due to violence is required to become pregnant again and horrifically by the aggressor himself. Pregnancy without the autonomy to determine when and with whom to become pregnant, without consent of the person carrying the baby. This is what the rabbis come up with when determining the most extreme perversion of justice. And adding to the cruelty of this ruling is that the judges of Sodom took a passage from the Torah, Exodus 21, the verse about a woman miscarrying, and interpreted it in exactly the opposite way from the rabbis. It's this verse, the rabbis teach, that demonstrates that the fetus is not a full life and therefore can be aborted for a wide variety of reasons. The liar, the forger, and the perverter of justice took the passage that supports the right to abortion and reinterpreted it against the needs of pregnant people in the most violent, dangerous, and oppressive way possible. If Canaan, where Rachav lived, could be Sodom, where do we live? Our judges will be named for their actions. And in their deceit and perversion of justice, so many will suffer. In 13 states with trigger laws and quite possibly 
double that number within a few months, these judges intensify every structural inequality that exists in our country. They disproportionately harm those struggling to make ends meet. Black and indigenous folk, people of color, immigrants, disabled people, individuals in rural communities, and trans men. Abortion bans fundamentally threaten our autonomy, our dignity, and our safety. So why did Rachav choose to align herself with the Israelites? Because she recognized the despicable corruption of her society and she determined to do everything in her power to bring about the destruction of that society. To build a new one founded on love and justice. My friends, we are Rachav's descendants living through the return of Sodom. Rachav is a model for conscience and action. In the fateful moment when the king of Jericho orders her to hand over the two men, Rachav protects them by any means necessary. In yet another conjuring of earlier biblical stories, Rachav emerges as the next iteration of the courageous women of the Exodus. Just as Yocheved, Moses' mother, hides him to protect the baby boy from Pharaoh's decree, Rachav hides the spies under flax on her roof. Just as the midwives defied Pharaoh's orders and then lied to him about the nature and whereabouts of these Israelites, Rachav deceives the king by lying about who these men are and where they've gone. In each case, the model of defiance is civil disobedience. And the message is clear. Unjust laws must be undermined. Both Rachav and the Red Strings of 1861 knew that it was their job to help protect people in danger, helping them find a safer place to escape to. How will we choose to hang the red strings from our window? I hope that we'll support on-the-ground organizations that help arrange and pay for abortion care for folks who need it, funds that help pr provide transportation and lodging for patients who have to travel hours and now across state lines just to access health care. I hope we'll take to the streets and to the polls, recognizing that abortion access is on the ballot this year with state constitutional amendments that could either enshrine or strip reproductive rights. I hope we'll embrace the redemptive potential of storytelling, sharing and witnessing each other's abortion stories. Vatikshor et tikvat hashani bachalon. And she tied the tikva in the window. It doesn't just mean red string. Tikva means hope. 
In our grief and rage for the world that we woke up to on Friday morning, there must also be hope that collectively the red strings hanging from our windows will ultimately undermine the perversion of justice in our midst. Hope that with clarity of conscience and determined action will create the society that our ancestors fought for. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.